Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me again is Phoebe Watson. Hello! It's lovely to have you back on the show, Phoebe. Always good to be back. And this episode should be coming out on Easter weekend. So happy Easter to everyone. I hope you had a a wonderful Holy Week, a prayerful Holy Week. And I hope you're having a wonderful Easter. We're actually recording this on Palm Sunday. And I don't know whether to bother caveating this. Both of us are a little under the weather. So um, we're, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're doing our absolute best. But no, I, I think we've, we've got a really great episode lined up. We're both drinking honey instead of tea at the moment, which is kind of symptomatic for how we're feeling. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but it's still lovely to settle in on Palm Sunday and to think about, you know, the week that's coming up ahead. And I think the topic we've picked, which... We were actually planning on doing earlier in the year and then scheduling just changed a little bit. So it wasn't deliberately picked for Easter, but I actually think it's going to be a really great topic for Easter. What we want to talk about today is two of G.K. Chesterton's books, the first being Man Alive and the second being St. Francis of Assisi. Which you have finally read. I have finally read. I'm sure there are multiple episodes of the podcast in which you can hear Phoebe um, nagging me to read Francis of Assisi. I got there. It was amazing. I knew it would be. I'm, I'm so glad I got to read it. I'm just so glad you did. And the reason we wanted to talk about both of them together is that I think both of these books have really strong themes which are of course like Chesterton writes about similar themes over and over again in in really inventive different ways but I think both of these books have a really great through line of a sensibility of the world and primarily we're going to be talking about the way that they they use paradox or use a kind of flipped sense of looking at the world, taking truth from a different angle, uh, turning things on their head head in ways that you wouldn't expect. But even more than that, there's also like an exuberance and a rushing joy to them. And it's kind of interesting because one is a sort of satiric comic novel, um, which was written in uh, 1912. It was published about four years after Orthodoxy came out, but I know from my reading um, Chesterton had been working on the idea for a while. But it's very much in a sort of comic novel. There are Christian elements in it. It's obviously playing with Christian morality, but it is, it's just comic and it's not religious in any serious sense. Sort of in the vein of The Man Who Was Thursday mm-hmm. or um, The Club of Queer Trades. It's kind of yeah um got that kind of vibe to it yeah definitely and then the second one is francis of assisi which is his biography we're going to put that in inverted quotes phoebe i think you you in particular were kind of emphasizing i mean i had a book club about this recently and well one of the things that was very striking to some of the people who weren't so familiar with saint francis was the amount that Chesterton assumes you know about St. Francis going into the biography. Yeah. Um, because it's not a typical layout of facts in his life. I think he felt that there was enough of that already and wanted to more talk about like the vibe of St. Francis, who he was like, and who Chesterton kind of understood him to be 
And that charism. Yeah, charism is a great word. I was going to say the sort of characteristics and virtues that he embodies. and Yeah, and even like his place in the world at the time and how he changed it. And how people understood him and how we can still understand him. Yeah, I think all of those are, are definitely more important to the book than he was born on this date. I don't he... think it even tells you that. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, I have to say for myself, I found it a really wonderful biography. I, I feel like I at least know the general outline of St. Francis's life. So I didn't need it to be this like clearly factorially based study. And actually I felt like it gave me a much deeper insight into the mind of St. Francis than than a purely sort of documentarian kind of book might have. Yeah, absolutely, because I think it puts all of the stories about him into the perspective of who he was as a person. Yeah, exactly. And so that was written by Chesterton in... It was 10 years after Man Alive. Well, it was 1923. It was the first book that he wrote after his conversion. So for anyone who doesn't really know Chesterton that much, um, I'd be surprised we bring him up a lot on the podcast. Uh, I think Second I, most quoted? I think second most quoted. I think this is the first episode that is solely about him. I but, think so, yeah. But I think our fairy tales episode was largely based on his writing. So he's, <laughs> he's definitely had a good feature. But I guess for people who don't, necessarily know him so much he was a journalist and writer at the kind of turn of the century late late 1800s but primarily the early 1900s and he he's known really famously as a catholic writer but he did actually have this very interesting journey which was from atheism and then writing a lot about christianity and having a certain level of conversion but that his formal conversion to catholicism actually comes a good while after books that that he wrote that we consider very Catholic, like his book Orthodoxy. Yeah, it was what? That was 1908 and he yeah. converted in 1922. <laughs> so, you know, uh, in some ways that is a... Just in case people are kind of surprised that it comes at this stage. But yes, yeah, so he didn't convert until 1922. He wrote St. Francis of Assisi in 1923. Um, I have a lovely quote about how he actually... He actually picked the name of Francis for his confirmation name. This was, uh, I think, on a website called Ignatius Insight. And the, the article's by Joseph Pierce. But he says, In July 1922, Chesterton was finally received into the Catholic Church. Eight weeks later, he received the sacrament of confirmation, choosing Francis as his confirmation name. It would, perhaps, be easy to suggest that the obvious motive for the choice was a desire to show love and respect for Francis, his wife. It was, however, hardly surprising that he should have chosen the saint who had been the friend of his childhood, the ally in his confused adolescence, and the companion in his approach to the faith. In any case, the two motives are not mutually exclusive. In pleasing his wife, he was also pleasing himself. I uh, love that. That's a very Chesterton <laughs> end to it. Absolutely. And I think that's something we're going to come to about how Chesterton views the world as like, being good is something that will actually please you if you enter into it in a really radical way. And it also touches on the fact that despite the him not coming from a particularly religious background, actually St. Francis was a figure that kind of loomed large in his imagination from very early on. So his, his Francis of Assisi in some ways, a bit like Man Alive, was a long time coming. 
Yeah, I think you can really tell that he has a great love for St. Francis. Absolutely. It really leaps off the page. This is just someone, it's like, it's someone you like telling you about someone they like, which I think is what makes it so compelling. Yeah. So I think for the episode, like I said, I've touched on the themes that we want to dive into. Um, I'm going to, I think we better start with just a few caveats. Yeah, these ones are important. Yes. Uh, the first one is about Man Alive. Actually, I think we only have caveats about Man Alive. Yeah. There are no caveats about Francis of Assisi. We assume you know the life of St. Francis. If you don't, well, it won't spoil the book. <laughs> so the things that we want to say about Man Alive is that we're going to be talking about it and recommending it in many ways very wholeheartedly. I think there's a lot of really great insight it's got a lot of Chesterton's charm you know Chesterton is so charming Um, and I think the thing that I want to say though is that it does also contain phrases sentiments sentences that I find really frustrating because they do really represent the you know Chesterton has got accusations of anti-semitism and racism and as we mentioned Man Alive is written relatively early in his writing career Um, so I'm not necessarily going to speak to whether you can track a change of opinions throughout his life I'm just specifically talking about what he expresses in Man Alive and I honestly wouldn't bring it up except that I do find them them quite off-putting very distasteful yeah they are in some ways kind of unforgivable and what's unforgivable about them is it's not that what he writes is um cruel in in the sense that he's not being cruel when he says things he writes them in very jovial good-natured ways but what he is saying is still very prejudicial and condescending and othering you know and it to me it's such a shame because the whole book is so centered on his ability to see past the commonplace perceptions of the day and to invert them and to show the, the ways that they don't make sense and how we should actually be going. So in some ways, to me, it's so disappointing then that he doesn't manage to do that for his own kind of prejudices or his own kind of short-sightedness in some ways. Yeah, definitely. So it's not that there are sort of tirades against any particular... In, it, like, he honestly treats all of the characters in the book jovially and friendly but he just describes them in ways that you're like that's not fair that's like really unacceptable (laughs) particularly the jewish character yeah there is a jewish character there's also some kind of like snide marks about an irish person Mm -hmm. um but he also has like characters kind of from around the world at one point and they can seem a little bit like small in the way that they're represented but specifically the jewish character that we're just like oh please like (laughs) yeah but i think what we're saying is that that's not the essence of the book mm-hmm. and that the es- essence of the book um, based around this character called Innocent Smith is one that's really worth thinking about and exploring. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I'm not saying it to say don't read the book, um, but I think at this stage in history that like I wouldn't want to say, I wouldn't want to not say it because I think if people are reading it, to me it's very obvious and apparent and... You know, I I hope that Chesterton 
I hope he's in heaven looking down on us with a sense of like magnanimity about it that like to say yes I was wrong and laugh about it and and hope for better for the world um and so I say it with a lot of love for Chesterton and you know all of the usual caveats about of the time and blah 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 but like I said to me the thing that frustrates me is that like I feel like of all people Chesterton should have been the one to break the mold on those kinds of opinions and he didn't manage it um but that there's still such a rich um interesting life in man alive to read so we are going to be talking about it from now on with like enthusiasm and love for this book as well yeah and we're also going to be spoiling it that's the other caveat (laughs) so the book is quite short and it would make for a very good Easter weekend read. And so if you really don't want it spoiled, um, how about read it over the weekend and enjoy it and then come back to this episode. The reason why there's a certain level which I thought about dancing around the sort of twist in this book, but we want to talk about the themes and the themes are about the, the contradictions and paradoxes. And that's really built into the mechanism of the story. Now, I actually knew the twist going in and I was when I'd accidentally read the twist uh, a while back, I was like, oh no, that sounds like it would have been really good to read firsthand. And I'm sure it is. But I will say, in some ways, the twist is pretty obviously built in. He's not playing too subtle a sleight of hand, you know? Yeah, you kind of expect it. You just don't know exactly how it's going to work itself out. And so to give a little bit of the plot summary of the book, it's about a boarding house in a suburb in London and where a lot of very ordinary people are living. And one day this man comes bounding in over the garden wall through the trees and uh, chasing his hat, chasing his hat. And he's described as a sort of like a rushing wind that like throws everyone up into uh, chaos well, he, in some ways. He comes with the wind. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Um, and he, they, become involved in him and his life and they get involved in this sort of creative and optimistic outburst about the world and then he's accused he someone comes along and accuses him of loads and loads of crimes you threatened to kill someone you married multiple people you um you stole from someone and on each they set up this sort of fake court and on each count it's revealed that actually the person he was stealing from was himself. The people who he threatened to kill them, it was to shake them to be alive. And actually, they're really grateful for it. And most importantly, the accusation of having married multiple women, it transpires that they are all the same woman, his wife already. (laughs) So he continually runs away with his own wife, steals his own stuff, breaks into his own house. And so it's this really fun and funny story about and the upset of expectations and and the reason why innocent smith does all of these things is to get at the truth of them to to love life and creation and the gift of life so much as to as they say covet your own goods and covet your own wife that like to not allow yourself to sink into the kind of mundanity and commonplace routine of your lives which takes all of these great gifts for granted yes that great inversion that he does of using that energy and paradox to see what great gifts were given yeah which is exactly why i think it's such a good one for easter because easter is the great moment 
of climax in the church where all of the expectations are turned upside down. Yeah, like even today, you start off with this great triumphal entry into Jerusalem in Mass, and then you end with Christ in the tomb. Yeah. And you've got that whole arc, and then obviously over the Easter weekend, we'll go all the way back up again to the resurrection. And yeah, the defeating of death, the coming out of, uh, or I love all of the language that the church uses of like the tree of life on which is nailed the son of God uh, in order that we might all have life. Or even, I think it was last year, I could be wrong. I think this was in our discussion from Fulton Sheen's book, The Cross and the Beatitudes last year, but the idea of I thirst being a statement that comes from the fountain of life. Um, yeah. All of those wonderful ways and of course the bible is littered with these paradoxes particularly in the gospels i think jesus is always presenting us with the the last shall be first and the first shall be last or the worker who came at the last hour will get paid the same as the workers that came in the first hour you know all of these things that offend our sensibilities or at least they should i think we often fall into this feeling of them uh, these stories and these parables being so familiar that you lose sight of the fact that they are supposed to be challenging and they're supposed to be shocking and strange yeah they're supposed to shake you out of yourself and it's in some ways a shame that it's very hard for us to access that kind of radical surprise in them and I think that's what reading Chesterton really enables you to do because he is always pushing you to to think the opposite of the way that you used to think. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting to see, um, obviously in St. Francis, we've got the example of a man who lives that out to the extreme as a great saint. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in Man Alive, we've got a much more ordinary character who's also living this out. I think that's just a great way to look at them together. Yeah. yeah. And I think before we get in into the real nitty gritty of the kind of paradoxes and inversions, the first thing that we wanted to say that I just love about these two characters together and drawing lines between them is this rushing sense of exuberance about both of them. And again, that's something that Chesterton does so well, which is this real love of life that isn't something facile it's a real earnestness to see the gift that life is and I think in the ways that the characters in the story are shaken up by both of these characters separately we should be shaken up as well and I love some of the descriptions to take man alive there's one quote which says existence with such a man was an obstacle race made out of pleasant obstacles (laughs) <laughs> and that ability to to take the things that should annoy you and actually see them as things to enjoy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, a little bit later it says, and in this way, I want to walk the world like a wonderful surprise. Yep. This about a man who we first meet climbing a tree. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or there's a really extended sequence in which he feels... N- I think he feels kind of not at home in his own home and he wants to rediscover the joy of it again. And so he runs 
the entire circumference of the entire world to get back to his own home. And he, you know, he leaves his home to find it. But it even describes it as a, a, an enormous treadmill that he's like using the entire globe as this like uh, racetrack to fling him back into the arms of his family and, and, and into the life of his home. Um, and so there's that wonderful sense of rush and exuberance. And like we said in the... Kind of the ridiculous though as well, I think. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's definitely, it's tongue in cheek, it's funny, it's over the top. But in a way that I think Flannery O'Connor says about having to draw large and imposing figures in order to, to convey anything to our, our diminished eyesight or having to shout at someone who's deaf, that like Chesterton really goes for these big, bold images rather than a true to life um, experience absolutely and I, I think it's so captured in the fact that Innocent Smith comes in with the wind I know. <laughs> and then when it comes to Francis of Assisi there are also so many great descriptions of this that I think again really capture capture that about St. Francis well first yeah, first of all there was one that I really like which is Again, about the sort of rashness of it, he says of St. Francis, Never was any man so little afraid of his own promises. His life was one riot rash of vows, of rash vows that turned out right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a great description of his energy as well. Um, It says, But his courage was running, in the sense of rushing. With all his gentleness, there was originally something of impatience in his impetuosity. The psychological truth about it illustrates very well the modern model about the word practical. If we mean by what is practical what is most immediately practicable, we mean merely what is easiest. In that sense, St. Francis was very unpractical and his ultimate aims were very unworldly. But if we mean by practicality a preference for prompt effort and energy over doubt or delay, he was very practical indeed. Some might call him a madman, but he was the very reverse of a dreamer. Nobody would be likely to call him a man of business, but he was very emphatically a man of action. Yeah, I love that. That's mm-hmm. so, so interesting to draw that distinction between the different meanings of practical and having clearly thought out aims or like clearly measured stages of implementation. Like St. <laughs> Francis is not the person for any of those. And I think he actually makes a really good point about how in some ways the Franciscans have had a lot of iterations over the years because it's very hard to hand that down as a system for people to carry out in their lives because so much of it is caught up in who Francis was. And so he makes good points about how it's not all about just that this kind of rushing impetuosity is what's called of all of us, but that we should be open to it as part of our our love of Christ. Yeah, I think there's a great illustration of how Chesterton says elsewhere, Therefore, it is the paradox of history that each generation is converted by the saint who contradicts it most. And I think there's that sense in both of them of the great energy of the saint converting the world around them. Mm-hmm. There isn't that we all have to be St. Francis. Yeah. Um, or that we all have to have the great energy of Innocent Smith. But that by learning something from that example, we can become more ourselves and become more like Christ. Yeah. And he has a, a wonderful quote, which I don't have in full here, where he talks about how 
frustrating it must have been for St. Dominic to see, because <laughs> he has this line about uh, St. Francis, oh, in, in all his leaps in the dark, Francis had the extraordinary faculty for falling on his feet. The whole countryside came down like a landslide to provide food and drink for this sort of pious picnic. So <laughs> this is in a context where St. Dominic has been horrified by St. Francis organising this giant event and not organising anything else. <laughs> no food, nothing. And like, you know, there is there there is definitely a virtue in actually thinking of other people enough to provide for them. But there is the flip side or the paradox of it, which also says that God will provide. And uh, he says it was a real victory for the Franciscan spirit of reckless faith, not only in God, but in man. Um, and even again, it talks about him when he goes to, to talk to the sultans and try to convert the Saracens. He stows away, and I just love this quote, in the first act of that attempt, he characteristically distinguishes himself by becoming the patron saint of stowaways. He never thought of waiting for introductions or bargains or any of the considerable backing that he already had from rich and responsible people. He simply saw a boat and threw himself into it, as he threw himself into everything else. It has all the air of running a race which makes his whole life read like an escapade, or even literally an escape. And I think the hilarious thing about that is that doesn't he get taken back again and then has to like depend, do it the normal way? Absolutely. Or even like later it says that there is there's something in the suggestion that the tale of St. Francis might be told as a sort of ironic tragedy and comedy called The Man Who Could Not Get Killed. Men liked him too much for himself to let him die for his faith, and the man was received instead of the message. <laughs> so there's so funny. this idea of him like attempting to make himself a martyr and just failing because people like him <laughs> too much. <laughs> yeah, walks into the camp of the Muslims and yeah. uh, walks out again. Yeah, exactly. And so even in that, there's a sense of God doesn't always grant you the the type of virtue or the type of saintly life that you would want. Like Cheston does a good job of explaining how that this desire to be a martyr was in St. Francis and that it just keeps getting denied to him. And so, yeah, there is a truth to saying that you can only be the saint that God called you to be. Yeah, I think we're going to finish up on that point with a quote for about the Franciscan Third Order. Mm-hmm. The morning glory which St. Francis spread over earth and sky has lingered as a secret sunshine under a multitude of roofs and in a multitude of rooms. In societies like ours, nothing is known of such a Franciscan following. Nothing is known of such obscure followers. And if possible, less is known of the well-known followers. If we imagine passing us in the street, a pageant of the third order of St. Francis, the famous figures would surprise us more than the strange ones. For us, it would be like the unmasking of some mighty secret society. There rides St. Louis, the great king, Lord of the higher justice, whose scales hang crooked in favour of the poor. There is Dante, crowned with laurel, the poet who in his life of passion sang the praises of Lady Poverty, whose grey garment is lined with purple and all glorious within. All sorts of great names from the most recent and rationalistic centuries would stand revealed. The great Galvani, for instance, the father of all electricity, the magician who has made so many modern systems of stars and sounds. So various a following would alone be enough to prove that St. Francis has no lack of sympathy with normal men, if the whole of his own life did not prove it. 
It is not merely true that these were great men who did great works for the world. It is also true that they were a certain kind of men, keeping the spirit and savour of a certain kind of man, that we can recognise in them a taste and tang of audacity and simplicity, and know them for the sons of St Francis. I love that. And again, once again, summing up at the end, audacity and simplicity mm-hmm. just feel like a great combination of words and hint at this this theme of paradox that I think we're going to dive into for the rest of the episode. And so to kind of set it up, I, I do want to talk a little bit about what we mean when we say paradox, because I think in our modern usage, it, it very bluntly just means something that almost doesn't make sense. It's like an oxymoron or um, it's a contradiction that can't be reconciled. And there is certainly an element of contradiction in the way that Chesterton uses the word paradox or uses the ideas of paradox, but it's a much more fruitful concept that is used to give insight into the multidimensional layers and Um, elements of the divine consciousness and creation. And so I have a few things that I want to to pull out here. Um, Firstly, I just want to tip my cap to, there was an excellent article on JSTOR, which was called Reason Exhausted, Paradoxes of G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis by Sarah Park McLaughlin, where again, she does a really lovely job of pulling out the ways that both Chesterton and Lewis to a, a lesser extent, but still an important extent, use, use paradox. Um, and I'll, I'll just read out her opening line, which is actually just summing up the way that uh, some of the elements in Christianity, but I think it's such a wonderful way of summing it up. She says, a savior who could not save himself, a king who had no visible kingdom, an immortal God who died so mortals might have eternal life, a speechless infant who was the incarnate word, only a few of the paradoxes with which Christianity is riddled. Which, in some ways, it's so obvious why Chesterton was uh, drawn to Christianity. <laughs> but she she makes this point, which is to say that paradox, the use of paradoxes is an imaginative task. And that, you know, when we come across it in mathematics or philosophy, it's kind of, it's almost like a dead end. It's something that people don't want to engage with because it sort of confounds the point a little bit. And, and so what she's saying is, is that, yes, but paradoxes can be fruitful when they lend themselves to imaginative understanding and taking you beyond human reason and into the mind of God. That's such an interesting way of putting it. And also to just highlight as well that in the New Testament, the word paradoxes in in Greek is often translated as just strange. That certainly Mm. in the past, while when we're talking about it, we are talking about an element of contradiction there is also just an element beyond like aside from contradiction which is just unexpected or uh, confounds expectations or uh, is just unusual and so it it is also just that kind of concept of strangeness and I think we've talked about that before in terms of fantasy of like seeing things in a new way the kind of unheimlich that sense of recognizing but also not recognizing that the ability to take yourself out of yourself and she quotes Chesterton as saying that a paradox permits an alteration of our angle of vision. I think there is another... That co- is very Chesterton. It is Chesterton. He also has another one, which is that paradox is truth standing on its head to get attention, <laughs> which is wonderful. 
And Chesterton in particular was really aware of this, these two elements of, of paradox, one which is kind of fruitless and the, the other which is fruitful. And he has an essay which is about these two types. And he says, For there are two kinds of paradoxes. They are not so much good and bad, nor even the true and the false. Rather, they are the fruitful and the barren, the paradoxes which produce life and the paradoxes that merely announce death. Nearly all modern paradoxes merely announce death. And it, as one of the examples, he, he, he was reading, I think, some sort of book of paradoxes. Anyway, he says, I turn the next page and come on what I call the barren paradox. Under the head of advices, Mr. Jackson writes, don't think, do. This is exactly like saying, don't eat, digest. <laughs> um, and I think... The reason why I wanted to just lay this out a little bit is that when we're talking about religion and paradoxes, I think, especially in the modern age, we're so used to hearing the accusation that Christianity and Catholicism just doesn't make sense. And I want to make sure that we're when we're talking about it, we're not just saying, oh, if it doesn't make sense, it's just a paradox and just explain it away that kind of way. Or to even say that paradoxes in some way disprove Christianity as like an intellectually coherent idea. I think the the typical one is like, oh, could God ever create a boulder that was too big for him to lift it? Which is just nonsense. And I think one of the best explanations of this that I've come across is actually coming back to Lewis in his... As we should. As we should in the opening of The Problem of Pain. I don't know. Did you want to read this one, Phoebe? Sure. His omnipotence means power to do all that is intrinsically possible, not to do the intrinsically impossible. You may attribute miracles to him, but not nonsense. There is no limit to his power. If you choose to say, God can give a creature free will, and at the same time withhold free will from it, you have not succeeded in saying anything about God. Meaningless combinations of words do not suddenly acquire meaning simply because we prefix them with two other words, God can. It remains true that all things are possible with God. The intrinsic impossibilities are not things but non-entities. It is no more possible for God than for the weakest of his creatures to carry out both of two mutually exclusive alternatives. Not because his power meets an obstacle, but because nonsense remains nonsense even when we talk about God. (laughs) yeah I love that and so I think that's an important distinction to make which is that paradoxes like Chesterton said that are fruitful are things that give us deeper meaning or a glimpse at the truth in the the article I said about Sarah J McLaughlin she says Certainly the paradox reflects an almost mystical quality that we intuitively associate with religious experience. A paradox often simultaneously affirms itself and denies itself. By what other means, besides the imagination, can we comprehend that the hands that made the sun and the stars are too small to reach the huge heads of the cattle? Quoting Chesterton in The Everlasting Man. And so I think, again, those that's another example of a paradox that just takes our breath away a little bit and helps us contextualize the immense surprise that is the story of Christianity. Yeah, and that it ties back to the idea of two truths held in tension. Mm-hmm. That 
both are true and yet they're held together in tension and though they seem to contradict there's actually a deeper truth behind them yeah absolutely Uh, which i think is what Justin is talking about in terms of fruitfulness or barrenness it's not that the two of them together make nothing but the two of them together reflect something far greater Absolutely. I love that description. And so I think maybe to dive into the texts themselves, I think in Man Alive, it's really summed up in the title, which is that the whole point is about shaking yourself alive again by reminding yourself that actually the least good thing you could do is to be so ungrateful and unnoticing of life itself. Yeah, there's this kind of great surprise at the idea of being alive. That it's this idea of his principle can quite simply be stated. He refuses to die while he is still alive. He seeks to remind himself by every electric shock to the intellect that he is still a man alive, walking on two legs about the world. For this reason, he fires bullets at his best friend. For this reason, he arranges ladders and collapsible chimneys to steal his own property. For this reason, he goes plodding round a whole planet to get back to his own home. For this reason, he's been in the habit of taking a woman whom he loves with permanent loyalty and leaving her about, so to speak, at schools, boarding houses and places of business so that he might recover her again and again with a raid and a romantic elopement. And of course, Chesterton is being over the top. I am not suggesting that anyone threaten their friends with bullets, but... Please don't. (laughs) But I think what's really interesting is actually that... The example of threatening to shoot someone is one of the first that comes up in the accusations against him. And it comes from a discussion that he's having with a professor who talks a lot about how, oh, intellectually speaking, it might be better if I'd never been born. And I think in our age, there's such an ability to to talk, th- talk about things in ways that actually don't reflect what we would really want for ourselves or that we actually know to be true or good and I think what Chesson does through the character of Innocent Smith there is to you know hold a gun up to someone and say are you really sure you would rather be dead or are you really sure that it doesn't matter if you're dead or alive that's it even more than that beyond your wants does it matter at all and I, I think that's so wonderful and I think what's interesting as well about it is that sort of jubilant freedom doesn't come from um, doing bad things. It comes from doing good things. And I, I think it's, a, a, again, it's a very C.S. Lewis thing to point out how actually the boring things are sin and actually the boring things are not following Christ and that it, the glory of God is man fully alive, which I'm pretty sure is where <laughs> Justin got that, got that title from. Yeah, and it's the idea that if he can defy the conventions, it is just because he can keep the commandments. That's so much it. I love that line because it's, I think we're very conscious now of what looks right and what looks appropriate and what looks even looks holy. And he, what Chesterton is trying to get at is the nub of the issue that the only thing that actually matters is keeping the commandments. And that if you're keeping the conventions such as having a nice respectable house, having a good job, having the right clothes, having the right opinions about everything. If if those are the conventions you keep, but you're not actually keeping the commandments, you're not getting anywhere. It's so 
gospel centric as well mm-hmm. like it totally reverts back to um like christ in the temple accusing the pharisees of um having kept the conventions and not the heart of the law yeah absolutely and so then there's this wonderful sense in which innocent smith is this character who defies every single convention in the book but keeps every commandment and that being not only okay but a positively good thing because he's gotten to the heart of what it really is and one of the parts i love is near the it's actually near the start where it's just when innocent smith has arrived and he sort of bounds into the house and the first thing he pretty much does when he gets into his room is notice that there's like a trap door up to the roof and immediately bounds through the roof and says right we're having a picnic up here <laughs> and just before that they had all seen him climb the the tree and had this moment of reflecting being like oh we've been here for years and we never none of us ever thought to climb the tree and this constant like reminding of all of these things that I think especially children are really interested in and I think Cheston had a great insight into the ways that children actually rightly perceive the world as as a big surprise and as an eternal gift that we lose that so easily. And so one of these characters, Michael Moon, who is known as kind of seedy, he likes bad company, he drinks a lot. Um, I don't think he's portrayed as as terribly bad, but he's he's not got a good reputation. And I think it's funny how Chesterton points out that actually this character is is fulfilling exactly the same conventions as someone who's very upright in that he is fulfilling all the conventions you expect of someone who doesn't want to fulfill conventions. (laughs) You know what I mean? That even in his deviation from the upright good and proper, he is still absolutely ticking every box of expectations. And so um, when they're sitting on the, the roof, this character Michael Moon says... If you have heard that I am wild, you can contradict the rumour, said Moon, with an extraordinary calm. I am tame. I am quite tame. I am about the tamest beast that crawls. I drink too much of the same kind of whiskey at the same time every night. I even drink about the same amount too much. I go to the same number of public houses. I meet the same damned women with mauve faces. I hear the same number of dirty stories, generally the same dirty stories. You may assure my friends, Inglewood, that you see before you a person whom civilization has thoroughly tamed. And then he goes, Christ confound it, cried out Moon, suddenly clutching at the empty claret bottle. This is about the thinnest and filthiest wine I ever uncorked, and it's the only drink I have really enjoyed for nine years. I was never wild until just 10 minutes ago. This is when they're having their picnic on the roof. Exactly. And that joy and exuberance of the convention of sitting on your roof and (laughs) having a a drink instead of falling into your same patterns over and over again. Even when you think that you're stepping outside of the conventions, you're still actually firmly within them. And it takes actually being genuinely good-natured and genuinely enthusiastic about life to actually enjoy any of those things. Yeah, the Innocent Smith kind of turns the whole house upside down for a day. Like, they declare their independence as a, like, nation of a house. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this energy that he imparts to all of them that shakes them out of their normal lives and helps them to see the ruts that they've fallen into. And I think there's also a really good point that he makes about those ruts, which is that uh, the other character, Inglewood, 
describes how those good habits are are developed in order to facilitate something good happening but that when you don't actually engage with the virtues that good thing never actually happens Mm. he says um there must be cried inglewood turning round in singular excitement there must be something to wake up to all we do is preparations your cleanliness and my healthiness and warner's scientific appliances we're all preparing for something something that never comes off I ventilate the house and you sweep the house. But what is going to happen in the house? That's such a good way of putting it. That um, It's not saying that our good habits and preparations are bad things, mm-hmm. but that they need to lead to the kind of exuberant joy mm-hmm. rather than inhibiting it. Yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, it's that idea of life, life is for living. Um, I love the Shawshank Redemption. And there's like, a, a, you know, me and my dad always quote that line from it that's very famous, which is get busy living or get busy dying. And Chesterton has it in another way where he talks about how he, I, he says, I don't deny that there's a, there's a need for priests to remind men that they will die. All I'm arguing is that there should be <laughs> men with bullets, maybe, um, that need to remind people that they're still alive, that life is still something that they have to live out and not just fall into um, existing and waiting until the end in some ways. And yeah, I think particularly when we go to St. Francis, there's this sort of idea that maybe the preparations need to look different as well, um, that they run over into this exuberant love of God. Uh, like Cheston's kind of drawing this, he's talking about the modern idea of Francis and this kind of bafflement with some of his actions. And like when he runs out and rolls in the snow <laughs> and yeah. puts that in the description of him, not as a philosopher, but as a lover and brings the energy of that doing great things for love to the life of St. Francis in order to be able to understand that. I think that's something that really ties both Innocent Smith and St. Francis together, is that they both have a great love of people and particularly their own people in their own place. Yeah, he has a great line of saying that he's the opposite of a philanthropist and that he doesn't love anthropoids. Um, He doesn't (laughs) love humanity, he loves men. Um, and or there's another really great description where he says that to, to St. Francis, men would never blend into a crowd in the same way that a man might blend into the desert, that Francis was always encountering actual people rather than like a mass of of anonymous people. Yeah, absolutely. For Easter, I think St. Francis also has just this great imagery of after he uh, if you if you if you don't know the story of Saint Francis too well, but he he steals some fabric from his father and his father's shop um, to give to the poor and ends up in jail because of it. Um, his father enacts that penalty against him, and that this moment comes as a really like pivotal moment in which, you know, a bit like Christ entering the tomb, that that Saint Francis enters the the darkness of the cave, and when he emerges. You know, it's not that he went in a completely different person. You know, Chesterton talks about this sort of um, chivalric lover kind of quality of St. Francis before, but that he just has this 
paradoxical change of perspective when he's in the he's in the cave and when he comes out it describes him as seeing the world hanging upside down which if there's anyone who listens to Mumford and Sons they have a one of their first album I think it's their first album has a has a song called The Cave which is specifically about um, this Chesterton line about coming out standing on your hands and seeing the world hanging upside down yeah there's a a different cave later in his career that he also kind of comes out of upside down Um, I think on the idea that he'd been in the cave so long that he was seeing things upside down. Mm. Um, but in this one, it's more that he rejects his position of, like, with his father and goes off to rebuild the church by begging for stones instead of begging for bread. Yeah, he's, there's that great line about saying how in the Bible it says, what man would, ask, would give, give a man a stone if he asked for bread? And this is the example of a man asking for a stone instead of bread, yeah, which I bread. love. And I love that image like you, you mentioned about like seeing the world upside down. Um, and I think maybe it, it's, worth, it's worth reading out. Do you want to have a go? Yeah. The man who went into the cave was not the man who came out again. In that sense, he was almost as different as if he were dead, as if he were a ghost or a blessed spirit. And the effects of this on his attitude towards the actual world were really as extravagant as any parallel can make them. He looked on the world as differently from other men, as if he had come out of that dark hole walking on his hands. The, the thing that is interesting about the way that he talks about the the vision of the world upside down is that it really again it's like a very literal example of a change of of perspective because it says this state can only be represented in symbol but the symbol of inversion is true in another way if a man saw the world upside down with all the trees and towers hanging head downward as in a pool one effect would be to emphasize the idea of dependence There is a Latin and a literal connection, for the very word dependence only means hanging. It would make vivid the scriptural text which says that God has hanged the world upon nothing. If St. Francis had seen in one of his strange dreams the town of Assisi upside down, it need not have differed in a single detail from itself except in being entirely the other way round. But the point is this, that whereas to the normal eye the large masonry of its walls or its massive foundations, of its watchtowers and its high citadel, would make it seem safer and more permanent, the moment it was turned over, the very same weight would make it seem more helpless and more in peril. It is but a symbol, but it happened to fit the psychological fact St. Francis might love his little town as much as before, or even more than before, but the nature of the love would be altered even in its being increased. He might see and love every tile on the steep roofs or every bird on the battlement, but he would see them all in a new and divine light of eternal danger and dependence. Instead of being merely proud of his strong city because it could not be moved, he would be thankful to Almighty God that it had not been dropped. He would be thankful to God for not dropping the whole cosmos like a vast crystal to be shattered into falling stars. Perhaps St. Peter saw the world so when he was crucified head downwards. I love that image of the whole town hanging upside down. Mm-hmm. It's so snow globe-like. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just think it's so clever how Chesterton is able to 
extrapolate out from that and say like the weight of it and the majesty of it all all of a sudden changes your feeling towards it when you see it upside down at that is this kernel that he goes on to to develop throughout the book which is how francis spends his whole life sort of heaping praise and thanks into a sort of bottomless pit to God that like nothing could ever fill that pit with enough gratitude to be truly grateful for all of the gifts that creation is. And so in some ways, it's only in seeing the kind of precariousness of the world that we truly start to offer praise. I think I've talked about this as well, which is that in my experience, I spend so much time worried about things or feeling anxious about things and then as soon as something genuinely goes wrong like as soon as something bad has actually happened my first feeling is always well thank god it isn't worse (laughs) that's a great one to have (laughs) but it and like I don't mean that in a sort of pious way but it's it's in some ways it's only when things start going wrong that you're actually able to confront with how much more wrong they could have gone that you begin to be grateful that X didn't happen in one way or that, you know, I had I had an accident with my car at one point and I smashed up my car, which was really annoying. And all I could think about was how grateful I was that I had, that it was a wall and not a person involved, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. No one was hurt. No other cars were damaged. Yeah. Like, yeah. The, the gratitude of, oh, that could have been so much worse. Um, it really... I think it really helps you to realize our dependence on God. Absolutely. And so in some ways, it's almost hard to access that gratitude when things are going right. <laughs> and and that, that should be our lesson, which is to access that gratitude. And, you know, my mom says this all the time about like, you know, you turn on the tap and there's water there. Like there's so many moments in our day that just slide by because they happen all the time. And it's like, it, it's ca- calling back to man alive and saying we get into that rut of the commonplace when actually we should be amazed, as Chesson said, that we have two legs to walk around on. That, um, that yeah, opening up your heart to gratitude is a really difficult thing because I think we, in our fallen state, we all feel so entitled. And I don't mean that in an accusatory way of, of saying that we're all entitled, but we're surprised when things go wrong. You know, at least minor things when things are, like when my internet doesn't work, it's like, how could this be? <laughs> and yeah. it's like, well, were you grateful for all of the times it did work? Yeah, it's such a big thing to think about in a way of like our levels of dependence in our lives, mm-hmm. that there is an unending amount to be grateful for. And yet we usually only see the things that have gone wrong. And that's only talking about our day-to-day the mundane part of our lives, if we ever actually really engaged with the gratitude of God coming down to earth, becoming incarnate to save our souls. I'm not even managing to be grateful that I'm well fed. (laughs) Um, I think it's really where these paradoxes come in. It's only when we see things in this paradoxical light mm -hmm. that we realise how much we've missed all along. Absolutely. I think actually, yeah, I think Cheston does such a great job of highlighting the way that Francis enjoyed being good for God, that it was actually something that he relished in rather than suffered through. Um, Actually, to to call back to, to Man Alive for a second, there's a quote in it which says, 
I do not believe that being perfectly good in all respects would make a man merry. Well, said Michael quietly, will you tell me one thing? Which of us has ever tried it? (laughs) I love that. Especially because it ties those two together as well. Because you've got innocent, but then even more so in St. Francis, of being perfectly good. And then it says that the stars had not looked down on a happy man. Like... Yeah, that's actually quite a long quote, but I think it might be worth reading out just because I I I heard this quote before I read the book, and it was it was the quote that made me fall in love with the book before I'd even read it. And so, apologies. I know this has been a quite quote heavy episode, but I'm I'm going to read out. I mean, we are talking about Chesterton. (laughs) The truth is, he puts it so much better than we ever could, so it's worth quoting him on it. Um, But I'm just going to to read out this whole section, which is in essence, talking about how St. Francis turns the idea, um, a life of virtue and um, moral discipline into the pleasant obstacles that we referenced in Man Alive. So it says, for it seemed conceivable that some barbarians might try to destroy chivalry and love as the barbarians ruling in Berlin destroyed chivalry and war. If that were ever so, we should have the same sort of unintelligent sneers and unimaginative questions. Men will ask, what selfish sort of woman it must have been who ruthlessly exacted tribute in the form of flowers? Or, what an avaricious creature she can have been to demand solid gold in the form of a ring? Just as they ask what cruel kind of god can have demanded sacrifice and self-denial? They will have lost the clue to all that lovers have meant by love and will not understand that it was because the thing was not demanded that it was done. But whether or no any such lesser things will throw a light on the greater, it is utterly useless to study a great thing like the Franciscan movement while remaining in the modern mood that murmurs against gloomy asceticism. The whole point about St. Francis of Assisi is that he certainly was ascetical and he was certainly not gloomy. As soon as ever he had been unhorsed by the glorious humiliation of his vision of dependence on the divine love, he flung himself into fasting and vigil exactly as he had flung himself furiously into battle. He had wheeled his charger clean round but there was no halt or check in the thundering impetuosity of his charge. There was nothing negative about it. It was not a regimen or a stoical simplicity of life. It was not self-denial merely in the sense of self-control. It was as positive as a passion. It had all the air of being as positive as a pleasure. He devoured fasting as a man devours food. He plunged after poverty as men have dug madly for gold. And it is precisely the positive and passionate quality of this part of his personality that is a challenge to the modern mind in the whole problem of the pursuit of pleasure. There undeniably is the historical fact and there attached to it is another moral fact almost as undeniable. It is certain that he held on to this heroic or unnatural course from the moment he went forth in his hair shirt into the winter woods to the moment when he desired, even in his death agony, to lie bare upon the bare earth, 
to prove that he had and that he was nothing. And we can say with almost as deep a certainty that the stars which passed over that gaunt and wasted corpse stark upon the rocky floor had for once in all their shining cycles around the world of labouring humanity looked down upon a happy man. I love that paradox of the aesthetic and joy Mm -hmm. that it's not a gloomy giving up um, but this sort of vibrant energy to it it's so powerful it's wonderful I I love it and I think that's such like I said I know it's a long quote but it's so moving the idea that you could you know wheel your charger around and gallop towards poverty and obedience as as a passion yeah absolutely I think there's always plenty more that we could say I'm looking at our document here where we collate all of our notes and there's still plenty more that we haven't even touched but I think I think that might close it out for this episode well the first thing I want to say again is to wish everyone a happy Easter yeah we hope you go and do some nice frivolous things to shake yourself out of the humdrum of the ordinary yep make some sofa forts have some picnics Um, Yeah, we realised that we've never made a sofa fort in our flat. Terrible. The other thing I wanted to say is that I was looking at my schedule and as the world kind of opens up, especially in Europe a little bit more, I have a greater travelling schedule. And so I do want to apologise. I don't think I'm going to manage to publish another episode until I think around mid-May so a bit of an Easter break when I, 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 I conceive of these podcasts as coming in two seasons a year there's a stretch from from about January February until May and then again from September to December there's about I try to have two episodes per month and a usually on a, a two weekly schedule and so just to explain that that's kind of my schedule but I also put a lot of preparation into these podcasts. I think that's what makes them enjoyable is that they're not just off the cuff, that we do take the time to make sure we read properly and prepare properly. And so I'm still kind of adjusting, you know, we've been in, in various stages of lockdown or a different different pace of life for the last couple of years. And so it's just taking me a little bit of relearning to get back on a better schedule so firstly I I do also cramming a lot of traveling in that you haven't been able to do (laughs) I'm trying to see everyone I haven't seen in two years (laughs) so I I guess I'm I'm bringing this up only because I'd love if anyone has feedback about whether they find it helpful that it is more on a schedule that they know when to listen for it or you know whether it kind of doesn't matter to you whether there's like a little bit of fluctuation in terms of when the podcasts come out I, I, I guess I can I can be quite hard on myself whenever I miss miss a deadline. So I'm just kind of interested to hear yeah. how much uh, our listeners actually pay attention to that or not. Yeah, or even do you prefer shorter episodes, longer episodes? Um, we usually vary these in length a bit as well. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I, I do like the idea of two episodes a month. And just because we missed one in March, but it meant that we did have another one in April. So this is technically our second one in April, but just about. about. (laughs) Um, But I hope to have another two uh, in May and I've already got one lined up at least. So uh, hoping for another two before the summer break. And yeah, just I, I, I thought it was worth actually bringing it up and 
seeing if there was any kind of feedback about that. And then I think the other thing that we have not done yet in this episode is ask you what you're enjoying at the moment, Phoebe. It's a very important question. Uh, So like we said at the beginning, I've been sick recently. And because of that, I reread a load of Georgette Hare books. She's like this mid-century writer who writes a lot of uh, Regency era books that are just fun and frivolous while kind of at least imbibing some of the essence of that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I really enjoy them. I haven't managed to make Rachel read any yet, but I'll get there. They're on her list. They're on my list. I'm a little bit intimidated by how many books there are. <laughs> but uh, I'm now being bullied by literally all of my friends in my life ever. Everyone around me has read them and I haven't. So I'll get, there. I'll get there eventually. I'm going to say, as we reference, I have been traveling. So Two weeks ago, I got to take my mum to Rome. She'd never been before. Uh, It was a short trip. It was only about three days. And it just, it was just amazing. And it was so lovely to get to share Rome. I'd been twice before, so I was able to show her around and get to share the the things that I like the best and to spend that time with my mum. It was a real gift to me and I actually got to meet up with Elizabeth Lev from our our last episode. It wasn't recorded in Rome but we did meet up afterwards and it was again just a huge thank you to her because it was really lovely to to meet up with her and and get shown around a little bit. Um, It was such a treat to to treat my mum. I I pleased myself by pleasing my mum. So (laughs) (laughs) the right way to do it. Yeah so that that's what I've been enjoying at the moment. Other than that, as usual, you can subscribe to our newsletter, which is on my website, rachelsherlock.com. I think it's on forward slash podcast. And please do get in touch if you have any uh, any thoughts or any recommendations, all of those things. It's always lovely to hear from you. And other than that, like we've been saying, we hope you have a very pleasant Easter. Goodbye. Bye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Seeking Watson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless. Mm-hmm.